podcast 142 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Stunning ships, delicious culinary, an amazing crew, um, and we deliver the destinations in a really beautiful way. Well, this week, we're going to talk cruising on the high seas, of course, and try and work out whether what is probably the most successful branch of the travel business is also the most damaging for the environment and for many of the destinations which it calls in at. Luckily, we have someone with us who, unlike my good self, yeah, I hold my hand up, I have never been on a cruise, actually knows about the subject. And that's the journalist Sue Bryant. Hello, Sue. Lovely to talk to you. Is it uh, OTT to call you the queen of cruising? Hello. Nice to be here. Um, It it may raise a few eyebrows if you call me the queen of cruising, but do feel free. (laughs) Well, I beg to differ because I've worked with Sue for many years. She is the cruise editor of The Times and The Sunday Times. And if anybody knows any more about cruising than she does. I have yet to meet them and I doubt if they exist. Anyway, unlike Mick, I've been on many cruises, some of them absolutely excellent, some of them terrible, and I'm looking forward to finding out how to move my personal compass to more reliably rewarding voyages. First, though, some listener reaction to our recent podcasting efforts. Reverend Mary Horse tweeted about last week's podcast, In and Out of Bruges. I visited one new year, she says, when the canals froze over. I've never been so cold. It was also wonderful to see Michelangelo's Madonna of Bruges tucked away in a church basement. Beautiful city. And Reverend Mary kindly adds, great episode. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. And uh, Sue, rather oddly, Bruges, given that it is inland, is actually a cruise destination, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's very popular, but um, you've got to actually be able to get there. And my last attempt to get to Bruges, because it's a coach journey from the port at Zeebrugge, was foiled because um, I was on a cruise that went to Zeebrugge at Christmas and um, it was so windy we couldn't get into port. So Bruges had to uh, wait, I'm afraid. It happens a fair amount in cruising, I find. Um, And it was actually indeed one reason why I failed to go to the Silly Isles when I was hoping I very much would. Well, I'm uh, very sorry to hear that, both of you. But uh, I went by train to Bruges and it was no problem at all. And talking of which, further to our recent chat with Mark Smith, the man in seat 61, Joanna at Saffron Flowers tweets, I am a devoted follower of at seat 61 and love train travel. The biggest sticking point, though, is the cost to get to mainland Europe, let alone trying to get to St Pancras. The cost in Britain is astronomical, and she gives some examples of what she says are equivalent trips in distance in France and the UK. And guess what? The British versions are between three and five times more expensive. Well, I think we should get Mark Smith back to discuss that very thing. Um, it is slightly more complicated, of course, and nuanced than just saying they're all great, we're all rubbish. Anyway, if there was any cause to uh, doubt Mark's commitment um, of sharing international railway information, here's a recent tweet from him about updating a southeastern corner, Asian corner of his website. He says, I love Indonesian railways, but every time they change the timetable, they change all their train numbers, which is really annoying. It means the best way to identify a train is by its name, not its number, as that doesn't change. I say the best way to identify a train is what times it go and where is it going? But there we are. He knows much more than me. 
Well, on a literary note, can I commend a piece of writing by Jean McNeil, who met us in a hotel bar in London's bookish district of Bloomsbury. Following the podcast that we recorded, I think it was number 139, Jean tweeted, What is place-based writing? Veteran travel journalist, I like the veteran, at Simon Calder and Mick Webb, <laughs> recently invited me back onto their great travel podcast. I like that as well. Thanks, Jean. <laughs> at You Should Have BT. The topic, travel writing in fiction and non-fiction, and it got me thinking. And here's a piece. And she wrote an article, which you can actually read on uh, Jean McNeil's blog. And we'll put the link on the uh, uh, anchor .fm website if you're interested. And it really is a very thought-provoking read. I think she meant budding travel writer, Simon Calder, but we'll see about that. Anyway, Sue, high time to talk ship-based holiday travel. There have been some quite conflicting pieces of recent news about the cruise business. There was a cruise ship that managed to run out of food in the Caribbean last week. But at the same time, cruise ships have been reporting huge increases in bookings during the uh, January booking period. 25 to 30% up, I think. And uh, would it be fair to say that this is a divisive business? It's certainly a, a controversial business and people have very uh, strong feelings about it. Um, people who have never been on a cruise tend to be a bit like you, Mick, and think that's not for me. I would never go. Wouldn't see me dead on one of those things. Uh, people who go on cruises, if they've picked the right ship, tend to get hooked. But the, the divisive thing is really yeah. cruising attracts drama. And it, it, if something goes wrong on a ship, it makes the news. It's everybody wants to read about it. And it so it's, I mean, I doubt that a cruise ship completely ran out of food. They may have run out of bacon or something, but <laughs> probably wouldn't be starving on board. But, uh, but yeah, the, the things like that get tend to get blown up to be, you know, absolutely my holiday hell and all that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, many, many people really love cruising. Well, that's a good point to ask you, Sue, what you like most about uh, cruising. and um, What are the most uplifting moments, the things you most look forward to as you walk up the Gangplank, is that what it's called? <laughs> the gangway, yes. Gangway, all right. <laughs> <laughs> that you walk the plank. But, uh, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I absolutely love the sea. I love being at sea. I'm happy for long, endless days at sea, just looking at the sea. I'm um, very interested in marine mammals. I love looking out for whales and dolphins from the ship. Um, I actually volunteer for a charity called Orca that uh, does surveys at sea of whales and dolphins. So you'll always find me there with my binoculars in the right place. Do you um, see lots? Sorry, just to loads, masses. Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely masses. I mean, just hundreds sometimes. So, yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, I'm often alone up there with my binoculars, but uh, <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> I love, um, I think cruising is, it's romantic. It's, I enjoy eating out on deck at night, um, having a cocktail as the ship sails away to the, to the next port after a really lovely day in port. Um, the service and the food tend to be very good if you pick the right kind of ship. But you have to remember, what you have to know about me is that although I write about all kinds of ships, I really, really love smaller ships and expeditions and adventure. So I'm not sure I would be the right person to be on a ship with 6,000 people. But, you know, some people love that. People with families, people who like nightlife, people who want masses and masses of choice, they would really love the idea of a, of a resort at sea. But I'm more, definitely more kind of small expedition ship person. 
Is that is that a technical term? I mean, it's a piece of jargon, isn't it, from the business that expeditions mean small ships? Is it, or, or is there something extra special about them? Expedition ships would by nature be smaller because they've got to get into places where giant ships can't go. They've also got to be built differently. So they've got to be built with a strengthened hull in case they come across ice. Ah. They can only carry a certain number of people because you couldn't you couldn't take 5,000 people to Antarctica and then just let them loose ashore. There's super strict rules about where you can go, how many people at a time can go ashore. You need um, Zodiacs, so inflatable rib boats to get people ashore. So yes, expedition ships are, are very different beasts and they're built very differently and they certainly attract a, a different kind of person. But you see, this is what this is where the stigma about cruising tends to stick. So I say cruising, you think big hideous ships, crowds in port and all that kind of thing. I say cruising and I think of all the incredible places that cruising or ships have taken me, which is anywhere from, well, the the Arctic, the Antarctic, yeah. um, the islands of Indonesia, the Panama Canal, the Sea of Cortez. I mean, absolutely incredible places, many of which you wouldn't visit unless you were on a ship. Um, first, fair to say, Sue, that actually there's some parts of the world um, where, and I'm thinking here about Alaska, sailing from there down the uh, uh, coast of Alaska and uh, British Columbia to typically Vancouver, where actually, and I've checked, you will have, even on a ship made for two or 3,000 people, generally a much better experience than you would do if you were making your way independently. Yes, there are ferries that run along there, but actually um, uh, in terms of getting up close to the shore, to having plenty of time in uh, the fascinating communities along the way, I'm, I'm very, very glad to have done an Alaskan cruise. But if we can just stick for a, a brief moment with the larger ships, Clearly, if you have got five or six thousand people arriving in a destination such as Venice or a small Caribbean island, that is going to have quite an impact. And I, I would say that maybe uh, Venice, uh, Dubrovnik, Barcelona even, um, when the cruise ships are in, you can absolutely tell uh, 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 whether you're one of the cruise passengers or indeed whether you're um, just trying to enjoy the city independently, you're going to have um, a less optimal experience. Is that fair? I think in some places that's fair to say. Um, I would disagree with you about Barcelona. I think Barcelona is a city that's easily big enough to absorb cruise passengers. Um, Dubrovnik is different because it's so compact. And Dubrovnik, in fact, um, limits the number of people that can go in every day. So, And if, if you want to plan a cruise to Dubrovnik, they've actually got a website with traffic lights on it that tells you which days, are red days are the days when there are lots of ships in port. So you should always opt for a green day or an orange day. Um, Venice um, has taken steps to stop or reduce the overcrowding. As you know, ships can no longer go along the Geodeca Canal or big ships can't. Um, it's much more difficult for cruise passengers to get to Venice now, except as on as day trippers. But cruising in Venice is a relatively small percentage of the number of people that go to the city every day. There's it's all the people who come in from the Lido and all the other places around who come on coaches as day trippers are, are just as well much bigger in volume than the cruise passengers. I think there are just too many people trying to go to places and and managing it by either putting a charge on it or limiting who can come when or time slots like it'll be like a theme park then but yeah i think <laughs> yeah. it's it's a massive issue 
Yeah, no, I, I can see that's the case. Um, I've also noticed that actually the size of the um, of, of the cruise ships uh, is not getting um, any smaller. And I thought you'd seen the biggest ones ever, but uh, apparently the Royal Caribbean Group, which I think is, is that one of the biggest um, yes. cruise uh, uh, lines um, in 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 the uh, in the world that they're taking delivery of three new ships this year and one of them is called the icon of the seas um and it's scheduled for uh delivery in quarter four of 2023 and it's going to be the world's largest cruise ship 250,000 tons uh getting on for 6,000 guests. Uh, it's got a massive multi-deck pearl structure, they claim, uh, <laughs> and one of the largest water parks afloat, which does seem quite funny, really, to have a water park when you're actually <laughs> on the sea, but never mind. And uh, Anyway, it's going to be uh, cruising uh, in the Caribbean um, as of January 2024, and it's only one of many. I mean, there are lots of very, very big ships, but I think as well there are some much more sophisticated small ones, aren't there, as well, that uh, companies are coming up with? Yes, there, there are many, many interesting smaller ships and companies are really experimenting now with greener fuel and hybrid power, so ships that run partly on battery power. The first ship that runs on um, or has the capability of using hydrogen fuel cells is coming out in the summer, which is all very encouraging. And a lot of lines... Although Royal Caribbean is famous for its massive ships, um, a lot of lines are actually building slightly smaller ships, which to you may still seem horrific if it's a ship that takes 2,000 people, but it's that's a more moderate kind of reasonable size. And then there are loads of ships being built that take two, three, four hundred people, again, in the expedition side, which is really booming at the moment. Oh, there's, there's all kinds of dynamics at work here. And as Sue says, yes, um, the Oasis-class ships, which are these absolute mega vessels that Ro Royal Caribbean do. Uh, and you've got Oasis, Allure, Utopia, Wonder, Harmony, Anthem, oh, Symphony, oh, and right, as you say, yeah. Icon of the Seas. And every time they want to say, we've just built the biggest cruise ship in the world, they just add an extra sort of six inches at the, the front or the end, it seems to me. But, but there are reasons why this happens. And of course, it's partly about economies of scale. It's um, an awful lot more expensive per person to move 60 people around than it is to move 6,000 people around. But also, the bigger you are, the better the facilities you can put on board your ship. And that is a really important aspect for a lot of people who do enjoy uh, the facilities of these ships, even though you and I, um, and maybe Sue as well, would regard them as massive floating apartment blocks um, with a, a ludicrous atrium at their centre. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, according to um, uh, Lisa Lutoff-Perlow, who's the president and the CEO of Celebrity Cruises, um, the onboard experience is just getting better and better, at least on her ships. Stunning ships, delicious culinary, an amazing crew, um, and we deliver the destinations in a really beautiful way. I mean, these ships are, um, you know, I, I think of them as boutique hotels, and, you know, you've just uh, explored our suite accommodations, and we're sitting in our beautiful retreat lounge, so this retreat experience is 
bar none, the best uh, probably in the world. Forget the cruise industry, the world. Uh, and then all of the world-class entertainment, restaurants, and everything else we offer, I think, is um, pretty second to none. Um, what Lisa's talking about is a, a big trend in ships at the moment in cruising, which is her her product, The Retreat. So it's almost as though you've got this product of a smaller, more luxurious ship within a ship. So if you book a suite on on Celebrity or on several other lines as well, you barely have to mix with the uh, with the hoi polloi. You could <laughs> you have your own lounge, you have your own restaurant, you have your own bit of deck space with a lovely pool, and you can really enjoy this very luxurious experience. MSC has it as well, and so does NCL. And then you only have to venture out into the sort of into the thronging masses if you want to do something like go to the theatre. So this is very much a, a fashion now to have a, a sort of luxurious, a whole extra level of luxury on a ship where you can pretend that you're on a much smaller ship, but enjoy all the facilities of the big ship, which works really well if you've got kids or if you want really lively nightlife. And it sounds to me as though you are bringing back the old, well, can I mention Titanic in this context? Probably not. (laughs) But, um, you know, the old first class, second class steerage idea. So um, cruise ships, and that's really interesting. So you are getting cruise ships where effectively – um, some cruisers are more equal than others, as Orwell might have said if he'd ever gone on a cruise. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that is it's quite funny because cruising used to be quite egalitarian. But now you really do have a class system. And Cunard have always had a this class system where you, you pick a certain cabin and that determines the restaurant you eat in. But it's becoming more and more common now, which is a, I don't it's kind of an interesting reversal of how cruising started out. But uh, but yes, the more money you've got, the better experience you'll have and the better you'll be treated. And just remind us, Sue, if you don't mind, how cruising did start, because um, it was uh, kind of almost a response to um, uh, jet air travel, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Um, obviously, there used to be the Grand Ocean liners that went back and forth across the oceans carrying passengers because that was the only way to cross. Um, but when jet aviation began, there were a lot of ships left with nothing to do. Uh, I mean, there are there are various different theories about which was the first actual cruise ship, but I think it's popularly believed that um, Carnival cruise line cruise lines Carnival cruise line started with a ship called the Mardi Gras, and they just decided to do pleasure cruises rather than cruising as a as a mode of transport. And it's amazing to think that this was only in the 1970s when you look at the industry now, and the size of it, and the fact that 12 million people a year go on a cruise. But uh, it, I mean, it didn't start well because on its maiden voyage, the Mardi Gras um, ran onto a sandbank. So <laughs> hopefully that wasn't a sign of things to come. <laughs> uh, just just gazing back just a little way, if, I, if we may. Sue, can you remember when you took your first cruise and how things have changed since then, whether for the better or for worse? Um, yes, my first cruise. Well, my first cruise in this capacity was in 1999. And it was on a Cunard ship called Coronia. Um, Foolishly, I accepted an invitation to go on this ship because there was a big naming ceremony for it. And it sailed from Liverpool to Southampton in December through the Irish Sea in a Force 12 gale. And every single person on board was hideously seasick. (laughs) (laughs) And I still came back for more. (laughs) You you went on a cruise from Liverpool to Southampton. Yes, 
in December. Yes, with lots of other okay. people. <laughs> lots of. And then you still went on to become um, cruise editor for the Times. Well, the yes. Times. And, and funnily so... enough, before I'd been on a cruise, my biggest fear was, will I be seasick? And of course, I was hideously seasick. And it's the only time I've ever been seasick on that one. So luckily, I did go back for more. But yes, things, oh, things have changed so much now. You have a, a, a lot of cabins have balconies and are like beautiful hotel rooms rather than what you might call your quarters. Um, the food is better. There's more choice. There's a lot more diversity, really, of what you can do. You do there's no longer just going on a boring coach tour in port. You can go hiking. You can go cycling. You can go kayaking. They a lot of lines offer excursions with it's quite immersive activities like cookery classes or I don't know pottery making. I think I've come across recently. So, but you know, just this effort to try and well, again, to try and get rid of this stigma and offer more to do rather than just sort of coming, descending on a place, going on a coach tour, eating something and then getting back on board. So, yeah, cruising has changed beyond recognition. And that's just in just over 20 years. Has the pricing changed, though? Because I know one of the um, uh, great uh, attractions of the sort of what you call the more egalitarian uh, uh, age of cruising was that in fact, you could get somewhere for, it's a bit like a, an all-inclusive resort hotel, but actually it was relatively cheap as holidays go for a really quite exciting fortnight, if you like that kind of thing. And I get the impression now that, in fact, if you want the really enjoyable part of it, you've really got to pay quite a lot of money. Let's say, for example, that you really don't want a, a cabin without a sea view. I can't imagine anything more horrible. Uh, it, for um, a fortnight at sea, uh, you've got to pay megabucks for that. Is that unfair? No, you haven't got to pay megabucks. And it, again, it's you're lumping cruising into just one type of holiday, but you could do that with hotels. And there are cheap hotels and there are expensive hotels. So if you wanted, say you wanted to go to sea, you don't expect to spend any time in your cabin except to go back there and crash. You want to be by the pool all day, out dancing all night. So therefore, yeah. book an inside cabin. Um, you can probably get that something for about probably 60 quid a day. Uh, that would not be all inclusive, but it does include all your meals. And some people are very happy to do that. They don't even bother to spend money on booze. They just want to go on the cruise. And on the other hand, you could book a really high end, expensive, all inclusive expedition you know, on a beautiful new ship with absolutely everything thrown in and you would be paying to go somewhere incredibly exotic probably up to a thousand pounds a day so that just shows how massive the range is of what you can pay <laughs> I would always say if you can afford a window or a balcony go for it because once you've had a balcony cabin you never want to go back to an inside yeah, I know I quite understand that you know I've been reflecting a bit on uh, why it is I'm uh, not attracted to cruising although there are obviously lots of very good things about it as you've um, uh, put very well Sue but uh, I don't think I really like the idea of um, the discipline involved in it for example <laughs> um, when you get ashore and I'm sure most people are delighted then to, um, uh, you know, uh, leap into a new place and find out as much as they can about it. But then you've got to be back by a certain time. It's like a curfew. And I gather that uh, they wait for nobody, these uh, ships. So if you're late back, you can 
you might well be uh, in the category, and this is a phrase I came um, upon, um, although I don't know if it's widely used, which is peer runner. That's P-I-E-R. And this is um, uh, the poor old passenger who has uh, stayed out a bit too long in the souvenir shop or climbing the volcano and uh, is laid back and has to run uh, down the pier, um, desperately trying to uh, get on board before the ship sails um, without uh, him or her. Have, has this ever happened to either of you? Well, I yes, but not since last August. Um, it was quite extreme circumstances, um, which involved, and, and I'm sure, Sue, you will know, the Sicilian port of Messina, um, which is a lovely location. Uh, it's just across, on, on the top right-hand oh. side of um, Sicily, just across from mainland Italy. So you can nip over. Um, last time I was there, I'd actually been on the train, which goes on a ship over the um, Strait of Messina. You can also get to the um, uh, beautiful Aeolian Islands, or you can go down the coast as I did, uh, right along the north coast, and that is absolutely gorgeous. And I enjoyed um, a bit of a walk, did a bit of um, hitchhiking, went to catch my train uh, back, and it unbelievably left early, stranding me. This required me then to um, uh, hitchhike, I was then arrested by the Sicilian police and moved off the motorway and instructed just to wait for the next train, which I literally couldn't do because the ship would be halfway to um, Naples by then. So I had to find a separate road. I hitched a lift with an Algerian guy, really nice guy, <laughs> who was on his holidays. And I said, I'm in some problem here. Could we possibly speed things up? I'll pay your tolls or whatever. And he said, I'd love to, but I'm only ever going to be here once. So let's go the pretty way. And we, we went along these interminable, but very beautiful roads. Eventually he dropped me off two minutes before a train, which got me in at the time that the gangplank was, or the gangway was, <laughs> was supposed to be coming up. Um, I, I, by that stage made a series of phone calls and, uh, they agreed to wait 10 more minutes for me and I sprinted from the station to the port and uh, with, with great derision, as you can imagine, from absolutely everybody <laughs> on board. That sounds phenomenally stressful. Well, anyway, but I made it and uh, otherwise I would have been stuck there uh, with only the clothes I stood up on, I think a bit of money, and um, having to try and get to La Spezia uh, in northern Italy by some other means uh, within two days, because that was what the uh, boat was Well, doing. I, I can recommend a kayak, Simon, in these circumstances. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yes, but that's quite good, because it's brought that element of excitement and unexpected expected uh, drama, which uh, I kind of felt that possibly you wouldn't get on board a cruise line, although I now realise that, in fact, it's um, brimful of possibilities. Um, uh, Sue, I want to ask you, what's your actual favourite cruise been uh, of all the ones you've, you've gone on? Um, the more extreme, the better, really. So Antarctica, which yeah. I'm very, very lucky to have done twice. Um, I went on a fantastic ship called the Commandant Charcot, which is a, um, belongs to Ponon. It's a French ship. And I went to um, the north of Svalbard, right up into the ice pack last summer, because that ship's oh. built to go through ice. That was just absolutely mind-blowing. And then on a tiny weeny ship that took no more than 30 people, called Aqua Blue, I went to Raja Ampat in, a, in the corner of Indonesia, which is probably the most beautiful place I've ever been. It was just devastatingly beautiful and spent every day in the water snorkeling I mean just ah. 
all all different places, snorkeling with manta rays. It was absolutely the best ever. So, but I'm very, very lucky. And no, I didn't miss the ship. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sue Bryant, cruise editor of The Times and The Sunday Times for enlightening us so splendidly. And I hope, Mick, that you might be tempted to join me on board. I can promise you will meet um, an interesting variety of people and possibly we could have some fun in ports and do a little peer running ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not entirely convinced, but I can actually see um, some of the uh, uh, some of the many pluses uh, which I will weigh against um, uh, my uh, curmudgeonly um, uh, negative feelings. But uh, I'm going to add to uh, Simon's uh, thanks. Thank you so much, Sue. It's been really interesting <laughs> chatting, and uh, we should actually say that. Uh, if any listeners to uh, the podcast would like to tell us about their cruise experiences, either very good or very bad, then please do uh, drop us a line or a tweet. Yes, please. You can tweet us at you should have BT or leave us an audio message at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. Meanwhile, thanks very much indeed for listening. From me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. It's been a pleasure, so goodbye from me as well. <laughs> <laughs>